Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Cast Dice, the podcast that explores the great big wild world of tabletop gaming that exists today. It's been said once or twice, mainly on this podcast, that we are in the middle of a gaming renaissance. There are just too many good games out there that we can spend our hobby time and our hobby dollars on. It can lead to a serious case of not knowing what to play next. And I guess that's the purpose of this podcast. It's to explore the games that my guests and I enjoy playing, to talk about big industry events, and to talk to the people who create these awesome games that we like to spend our hobby time and hobby dollars on. And that's what we're going to do again today. I know we've been on a little bit of a roll recently of talking to authors of games. Uh, that's partially due to the fact that I did have to shut down for a, about a month when I was uh, doing lockdown teaching and writing reports and all of that. And as we were finishing that arc, uh, a game snuck into uh, my consciousness. Uh, I saw a bunch of friends talking about it, and I looked into it myself. And man, does it look fun. So I have invited the author, or one of the two authors of that game, on today. You would know this gentleman if you are a Warhammer fan on YouTube. Uh, he is the man behind Warhammer Weekly. That's every Wednesday. Of course, I'm talking about Vince Vinterella. You might have known him from his days as a D&D writer. Um, he also has uh, a great uh, hobby show on YouTube called Hobby Cheating. Vince, welcome to Cast Ice. I've seen you a million times on YouTube, and it's great to actually be able to interact with you. Oh, well, thank you very much, sir. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. That was a uh, very generous introduction, probably too nice, frankly. But uh, I am more than excited to talk about Rain and Hell, about the new game that, yeah, as you mentioned, yes. Uncle Adam and I just released. Uh, we're, we're super thrilled about it, and we're really glad to hear people are enjoying it. Now, before we get to the demon game, and I'm super excited about that, I want to quickly double check something. Now, yeah. I've heard you say recently that you have been running your YouTube show, Warhammer Weekly, for six consecutive years without missing an episode. Is that right? That is correct. We started on January 28th, 2015, and in that time, I have never missed an episode. I've never missed a Wednesday, yes. God. We had one Wednesday that actually ended up being on Thursday, but I didn't miss the week. Man, that is amazing. As someone who does a weekly show, that is dedication. I take my hat off to you. That is amazing. Now, you have to be excited about Age of Sigmar version 3.0. Um, is this something that, I mean, clearly you love the game. Um, are you happy with the changes that you're seeing so far? Oh, 100%. I think it's it really is. Not to fall too much into their marketing, but I do think it's the best edition of the game they've made. Uh, it, it really is an edition that speaks to me. It has a lot of focus on having fun with your heroes, with your monsters, on playing the game in what I think is a simpler way to score it, to understand it, but it also has a lot more high ceiling for tactical acumen. All these things I love. In my heart, I'm mostly Timmy, but a little bit of Spike, so I want to stomp around with my big monster toys, but I also want to win. And I think this is probably the best edition if you're someone like me. So, yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled. Uh, we've been getting into it the past couple of weeks, breaking down everything in the new edition. And, you know, there's still more to come. But uh, I've, I've gotten several games in so far and just been having a great time. It's, it's, it is an absolute renaissance in tabletop gaming right now. Right. Gaming of all kinds. I agree yeah. with that completely, that statement you made. And... What we see both from big companies and indie creators alike, it's it's really accelerating and building to a level because I think of things like what we're doing right now. 
You know, the world mm -hmm. has become so much more connected. It's so much easier for people with great ideas to share information, to get their games out there. We can easily find more cool games, learn from them, get ideas. And it's not just players, by the way. It's writers and designers of games that are finding more cool games and getting into more cool games and talking to other authors and game designers. And that technology that is game design is, is really spreading out in a big way. And we're all learning from each other at this rapid pace because of the world we, we live in with technology. And so I just think it's, it's nowhere to go but up is my honest answer. Agreed, man. Agreed. Well, I mean, I mean, this game that we're going to be talking about today, and I did bury the lead a little bit by talking about your channel for a second, but the game we're going to be talking about, and they will have seen this in the episode title and write-up, is called Rain in Hell, and it's a demonic skirmish combat game. Now, this is, you and Uncle Adam um, have gotten together and created your own game company, uh, Snarling Badger Studios, which you know, is exactly what you were talking about just now. And the two of you are online collaborators and content creators. Um, and you have worked together now to create your own game. Of course, um, you guys would know Adam from um, Tabletop Minions. And you guys got together. And we've talked a lot about how COVID has impacted the gaming industry. And having token, uh, spoken with Joseph McCullough recently, um, and he came up with the solo bounty hunting rules for Stargrave. Uh, interestingly, after the game had gone to print, but then he actually came out with this really expansive attachment to the game that was free upon release because it never went to print. It was a free PDF. And he did that because of COVID uh, and lockdowns. Now, this is a project that likewise occurred because of lockdowns, right? Um, can you talk to us a little bit about how Rain in Hell began? And then we'll get into what it is. Yeah, absolutely. So I, Uncle Adam and I have been friends for a while. And I was, this is maybe back in 2019, pre the, the pandemic. Right. Uh, I was hanging out in Wisconsin with Sam, uh, Sam Lenz and Uncle Adam. And we were just doing a little paint streaming and, just, you know, just having a chill time. And Adam said, hey, I've got this idea for a game that's been bouncing around for a while. And he kind of pitched me to sort of, you know, I want to do something with demons and skirmish combat. And he, he kind of gave me a sort of uh, elevator pitch for it. And I said, yeah, you know, that sounds cool. Think about it. And, and you know, if you want to do something, reach out to me. And then a couple months later in 2020, right before the pandemic hits, this is actually late February here in the States. Uh, the, like right before the pandemic became strong in the States, that is to say, mm -hmm. I was up in Wisconsin, uh, again, visiting them to just hang out. And he said, Hey, I, I really been thinking more about this. I've got some ideas. We should get together. We should talk. All right, well, let's do it. And because I've, I've written several games before I had published several games before, as you mentioned, I, you know, I've worked on, uh, as a freelancer for larger game companies. And so I, I had some experience in how to go about crafting and creating something of this type. And then the pandemic hits and, you know, after it sinks in a couple months in that we're not going anywhere anytime soon, at least not in the U.S., uh, Adam reached out and we were talking and chatting. He said, well, you know, do you want to, do you want to actually do this? And uh, yeah, let's do it. So we then started basically having some calls. We, that coalesced into a weekly or biweekly meeting, meeting once or twice a week. Uh, where we would start sketching out ideas. We laid down 
I'm, I'm pretty formal in my game design process. So we start with the words, the keywords of the game. So in this case, it's fast, brutal, miniatures agnostic, campaign play, skirmish combat, right? That was the words we started out with. We knew the game wanted it needed to be all of those things. And that ends up becoming very much what the game is about, right? If you ask me to, what is the game? I'd say Rain and Hell is a, a, a brutal, fast-paced, miniatures agnostic skirmish game that allows you to play fun campaigns with your friends. There you go, right? Boom. And so we started refining it, went from there, built some guiding principles, started building out the core concept of what the world looked like we wanted to seed it in. We really did start with the narrative, the story, the, the world that these things occupy because I'm a big believer that mechanics work best when they flow from a logical place mm -hmm. uh, and that you should have these guiding principles of what the world looks like, feels like, tastes like, and touches like. Mm -hmm. And then that should translate into the rules because that verisimilitude creates an engaging experience, right? There's a, there's a, uh, a holistic aspect that you feel, even if you're not sort of consciously aware of it when you're playing a game, if everything kind of aligns. So yeah, and then that that's basically how it all came about. Uh, we worked on it for several months, and at the end of May this year, we released it. So that was, it took maybe, I don't know, nine or ten months total from start to finish, probably. Nice. Well, let's dig into that world. Um, I know that you talked about the importance of that in uh, creating the game. Now, this, when we say Rain in Hell, uh, and it is a demonic skirmish combat game, um, immediately I get flashes of the old, um, was it Path to Glory Chaos campaign that appeared in different versions of Warhammer, where you had, um, you know, demon warbands uh, vying for supremacy in the realm of chaos. Of course, this isn't the realm of chaos, this is hell. Now, this isn't the usual Judeo-Christian version of hell, though. This is, um, this is its own sort of alternate dimension plane, um, and the, the order of hell has sort of gone out the window. Can you uh, explain this? Because I get the feeling you will do a much better job than I. I would be very happy to. Because you see, this was all part of a sneaky plan that we had to also make this a post-apocalyptic game. Nice. Because that's what it is. It's a post-apocalyptic game that just happens to be set in hell. Uh, the basic premise of the story is that hell has always been a pretty terrible place by what any human standards would evaluate it as. But there was at least an order to it. Uh, so it was a, a very orderly, albeit horrible, evil place. And there was a directorate and a bureaucracy and everything you can sort of imagine that kept the engine of hell running. And the engine runs on souls. There was a single massive portal that connected hell to earth. And the directorate held power by holding that portal and having other and being very powerful beings in and of themselves. And they, you know, ran the demons that would go to Earth and then attempt to gather souls. And there were different ways they would gather souls, all the ways you can imagine from traditional folkloric mythology and story tales, right? So maybe they uh, get you to sign away your soul in a contract, you know, they trick you in a contract or. Maybe it's fey creatures the arid that lure you into the woods mm -hmm. and unbeknownst to you, you kind of uh, follow them and think they're a, a, a sort of noble or friendly creature. But then it turns out, oops, you wandered into hell and now you're trapped there forever and your soul is forfeit, right? Because they could force humans across the portal. 
they had to go willingly. This right. was the trick, right? And everything to get the souls into hell, the human had to willingly make this choice. And so this goes on for a long period of time. Everything's running as normal until basically one little demon who's out there trying to gather some souls messes up and gets caught. And they find out the true nature of this creature and it escalates and escalates and escalates up, 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 you know, through levels of, of uh, uh, human power, that is to say, from local constabularies to the church to governmental figures and so on. And they learn the true sort of the true history of what's happened and how long hell has been raiding them and decide that, OK, that's enough. We're going to put an end to this. And they rally together their greatest heroes, send them through the portal and kill, destroy the directorate of hell and then close the portal forever, destroying it effectively locking off hell and getting rid of its resource that it needs to run. So there's now a static amount. Hell society collapses without leadership. Everything falls into chaos. And now a sort of innumerable number of years have passed. And in the great vast wasteland, all of these different demons are vying for control. And that's actually where we come to philosophies so i don't know if you want me to launch straight into that yeah, or i'll man. give you a minute yeah please do so the philosophies are sort of the factions that you can build your warband from that's exactly right i think that in a game it's really important to have a why that is to say when i look at games that are successful where i know they gain traction for me is when there's a clear why Mm -hmm. I'm doing what I'm doing in the game with my avatar, whatever that may be, right? Mm -hmm. Anything from a board game to a card game to a tabletop role-playing game to a tabletop war game. I think that when you can understand the perspective of the thing you're meant to be embodying, it makes the game more compelling, since you talk about all kinds of games, I just recently got to play for the first time the Dune board game, the old one that was from the 60s that was recently re-put out. Oh, I didn't realize they put that back out again. They did. They're making a simpler version of it later this year. Somebody is. I'm not excited for the simpler version. I like the one from the 60s. I think, I don't remember who did the reprint, but somebody did a very direct reprint of it, just updated with new pieces, new sort of modern technology to the cards and board and stuff like that. And, you know, in that game, you're playing one of the forces from Dune. And Dune is one of my all-time favorite stories and movies and everything like mm -hmm. that. And those different forces have very different motivations in the game. And that manifests through completely different win conditions. Okay? Mm -hmm. You're literally not trying to win the game in the same way as your opponent because you have different goals. Right. Right? And I find that so compelling. So when we came time to, to think about how we wanted to organize things in Rain and Hell, I knew I wanted it to be based around this concept of philosophy, of belief. Because there's nothing else in Hell. Demons sort of self-actualize what they believe to be true about themselves is, because they're not made of physical blood and bone like mm -hmm. we are. They're nothing more than coalesced soul energy, sort of given a form that it thinks it has. And... So the philosophies are more than just idle thoughts that these demons have. The more they believe them, the more demons they draw to their cause, to their belief set, the more their belief becomes true. 
the more it reshapes hell around them and the more powerful they become because of the strength of their convictions. So we have these six philosophies in the game, each of them with a particular uh, take on exactly what they think hell should be. So just I'll cover these extremely briefly. Mm. The lords of hell are sort of your conservatives. They want to go back to the way things were, right? They think the old way was the best way. That's what we should stick with. We need to rebuild the bureaucracy. You have the earthbound who've said that, well, hell is over. Let's get out of here. They're just trying to figure out how to restart the portal and get back to earth where all the juicy, juicy souls are. You have the demented who have accepted the current status quo. They don't want anything to change. They like the chaos and have embraced it and think, no, no, this is the way it always should have been. We were fooling ourselves before, right? Uh, this is the way things should be. Uh, you have the brokers, which are your your sort of uh, hardcore money men. Uh, they are the ones who uh, controlled all the souls in the old world and so are very wealthy and have lots of resources. You have the judges, which are people who manipulate the sort of metaphysical laws of hell itself, since it doesn't run like Earth, it's an alternate dimension. Mm -hmm. And they abuse those laws to gain power. They were the sort of judges and bureaucrats and executioners, so they're that cast of people, right, uh, in, the, in, the old, in their old lives. Mm -hmm. And then finally, you have the empty, the, ultra, the ultra nihilists who just think, no, no, hell proved it's, a, uh, it's not a worthwhile concept. It failed. We should let it fail all the way. The problem is we're keeping it on life support. The only answer is to blow everything up, destroy everything, all demons, all of hell. It should just be eradicated and there should be nothing but emptiness here. Like, this is over, let it die. That's the six. And so each of those manifests in game rules in the way your leader plays, in the devout that serves you, and we can talk about what all this stuff means in a minute, and just the general special rules you have for members of your cabal. Yeah, I like that. I like how you have tied um, the narrative specifically to the faction special rules. I mean, you've <laughs> you've answer, answered most of my questions as you've gone, so that's brilliant. Um, let let's talk about making your warband. So once you've chosen your philosophy, um, and you you have a general idea of what direction your warband's going. Again, this is a miniature agnostic game, so visually this can manifest itself any number of ways. I know there are armored demons as one of the demon choices, and we, we'll get to those later, but I know that those could be like giant armored samurai or chaos space marines or however you want to represent them on the tabletop. It really just, I guess, depends on your miniature collection and where your imagination wants to go. But each one of your, or I guess your, your faction is, your, your war band is led by a leader, and then you have um, a devoted to them who then does... Uh, so you have your almost like your leader and then a lieutenant, and then you build the rest of your warband out of sort of lesser demons. Now, that means that on the tabletop, you're looking at about just table size. Um, we're talking about seven to ten models. Is that right? And then we're talking exactly. a table size that is roughly to that of Warcry or Kill Team, which is the, what, 22 by 30? Uh, also exactly correct. Yep. yep. But... In case you don't have those boards uh, and you have a lot of three by three mats from playing other games, that works as well. So talk to us a little bit more about how your warband is formed. Once you have your leader and lieutenant, how can you bulk that out? Because as I said, there's lesser demons that you can buy from a catalog, so to speak. 
I guess before you get to that, we should mention this game can be played as a one-off. In fact, it can be played as a one-off very effectively, um, just two people playing against one another. One thing that you said earlier is campaign, and um, your warband can develop, and every model in there can grow. So it's something you want to consider when building your warband, but then you can work up to even larger demons and uh, more monsters and bigger griblies. So I guess, can you talk through that process? Yeah, 100%. So we wanted to make sure that it didn't require too many figures, honestly, that it was achievable. So part of our, our goal with this game was to make sure that people who might maybe aren't into miniatures agnostic games, like maybe this could be a great gateway in there for them, right? So we wanted to, so you can use any figures you have. Stuff in your collection, maybe the 3D prints you've always had your eye on, maybe mm -hmm. some force from a game you don't play, but want an excuse to buy and paint. Whatever, that's fine, right? Mm-hmm. Your general starting cabal size is seven uh, or eight models, usually seven. And that consists of, as you mentioned, a leader. The leader you have quite a lot of control over. You sort of pick a base frame, as I would call it, which is like a warrior or a zealot or a schemer. And then you layer on various different uh, elements on top of that thing to sort of craft your own special unique leader. The philosophy you chose will enhance them. You can pick essences, which are souls. They, they special, unique, powerful souls that they integrate into their being permanently, or relics, which are soul-infused items, effectively magic items, something like that, right? Which gives you a lot of opportunities to individualize and really tease out who your leader is, right? Absolutely, yeah. If you want it to be... You want a very offensive leader, no problem. You want a very defensive leader. You want a very mobile utility leader. Like, sort of however you picture your your leader operating or the type of thing you want to, to make. Uh, fine. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's great. They are served by a defined, as you mentioned, we call it the devout. Uh, it's it's a, a heavy or a right-hand man or a lieutenant or whatever you, know, you want to say, right? And, but this is a true fanatic of the belief. They are more or less, they have completely bought into the philosophy. They are a zealot, and they are the enforcer for your leader. Uh, in different ways, by the way, not all of them are necessarily combat monsters. Some of them are simply very pure manifestations of that particular philosophy's belief set. Mm -hmm. um, that is more structured. You kind of get it automatically based on the philosophy you choose. For example, if you choose the Earthbound, you have a succubus. That is the devout. It's an automatic choice. Or sorry, it's an automatic assignment. It's not a choice. Right. And, uh, you know, each of those has a unique ability that will, the only way you can gain access to that devout is to be that philosophy. And then lastly, yes, you have this pool of lesser demons. There are uh, six different lesser demons to pick from. When you initially build your cabal, you can only pick lessers. There are lesser greater and superior demons. Um, these are all collectively referred to as minions. And, uh, but you can only recruit lessers to begin with. As you go on through the campaign, or if you play a higher point game, you can recruit higher, uh, like if you play a higher point one-off game, you can recruit higher up the ladder. And your lessers over time can evolve themselves into greater and superior versions uh, of that base demon. Uh, and so effectively you you purchase them. You have a set number of souls. Souls are everything. They are currency. They are a game mechanic, as I'm sure we'll get into. Mm -hmm. And you make a decision about what exactly you want to recruit into your initial cabal. Pretty straightforward. Um, everybody has a cost. You keep spending until you're out of souls. 
That's it. And the whole point of the game, of course, is to, as the name implies, reign in hell, to become more influential, more powerful, to carve out your own corner of hell, if not uh, a bigger corner than that. And so as you go, your characters develop, and theoretically, things improve, uh, unless they really don't, at which point um, you start to uh, lose things, just like a good campaign game would allow you to do. Now, this game has 10 missions in it that you can play through with your opponents. Now, what's cool about that is it's not just one-on-one. There are 10 missions that, yes, you can play one-on-one, but seven of those are missions that you can play with up to four players. So there's all sorts of King of the Hill type scenarios, which are fairly straightforward. As you say, this is a very fast, brutal game. So just getting to the top of the hill and having one central objective and then trying to cast everyone off the, the, the top is you know a natural scenario for that. But then there are other scenarios that have far more granularity and depth that really force you to make some decisions. Um, and we'll get into the decisions in the gameplay in a second, because the activation system for this game is awesome. But as you go, and there is one solo mission, I should say, or one mission that can be played solo. Uh, and we'll talk more about solo plan in a minute, because I know you have plans. Can you talk a little bit about the scenarios? Because I know you've put a lot of time into them to make sure that A, they're fun, but also B, that they tell a narrative that aligns with the, the narratives within the factions. So there's multiple layers of narrative within this because you as a faction have your own sort of global objectives, but then within that you have the objective of the mission. And so they combine in really fun and interesting ways. Yeah, 100%. So yes, the, as you said, there are 10 different scenarios and, and exactly, you, you, you've got the numbers exactly correct. Uh, the uh, the general idea is we wanted to have really a varied set of experiences. So to me, scenarios are just the element that can really be the decider in the type of fun you have. Because if the game was just, hey, I've got some dudes, you've got some dudes, let's run at each other and kill each other, that game gets old pretty fast. Yeah, it right? does. <laughs> yes. I I want to experience something when I'm playing a game. And so in the scenarios, some of them are, you know, some of them are based on combat and fighting. I mean, the game is about fast, brutal combat. So you're always going to be fighting to some degree or another. But those that, that doesn't necessarily de- decide the win condition. Uh, some of them are more objective-based. So moving to a place and holding a static thing you know, uh, where you you have something in the game world that you're trying to work with to mine, to extract souls from, to do whatever. Some of them are grab and move missions. Uh, So things like you're trying to, there are relics scattered around a battlefield and you don't know which ones are valuable and which ones are just junk. And you are going against another opponent or multiple opponents trying to grab as many uh, pieces of treasure as you can and get away with them before your opponent smashes your demons carrying them. Down to very unique scenarios, uh, things like uh, the twins where you have two objectives, but you can only ever claim one of them and you have to use the one to kill the other objective. So it's like this sort of cursed yin yang. Love it. Uh, We really wanted to make it a set of varied experiences uh, where you can hopefully play them multiple times with different warbands, different cabals, and it feels like a different experience because your force is different, the demons you're using are different, the abilities of your cabal because of your philosophy is different. 
Uh, and so I certainly hope that that's what we achieved. Certainly that's uh, what we, a lot of the feedback that we've gotten is that, is that that's the case. Well, as I said, there are consequences when models die in this game, be it in a mission or between missions, uh, or you know what happens uh, to these, because as you said, they're not alive. They're sort of metaphysical manifestations on another dimension, a dimensional plane. Can you talk to us a little bit about um, soul energy and specifically soul dice? Because that is a really cool mechanic in this game that when you vanquish uh, another foe on the tabletop or you knock someone out of action, you actually absorb part of their soul energy and that gives you an actual tangible um, dice in this game that you can then use to manipulate gameplay later on in that game. Yeah, I really, I really like the way the soul dice mechanic came out. There's sort of two mechanics I'm actually quite proud of. Uh, whenever you write a game, there's always going to be a couple pet mechanics you have that you hope work out well, and I think both these did. The other one being the activation system. But the soul dice, it, it basically works like this. If you have a demon and they slay another demon, then they get to collect a soul dice. Now, the important part that I didn't say there, the word that I didn't say was enemy. Okay? Oh. You can collect soul dice for killing your own people as well, and oftentimes that may be quite a clever strategy. Um, there are rewards you can get for killing your own people in certain places in the game. Uh, so, they're demons. They're not friendly with each other. Even when they're working together, you can find yourself on the short end of the stick. These are not, you know, moral creatures. Uh, and so what's happening is whenever you, when a demon is slain, the demon that killed them, if they're close enough, they get a chance to sort of rip a little bit of the soul energy because demons are sort of constituted of multiple souls or portions of souls all swimming together into their metaphysical form. And so you can rip a piece of that away. And that's manifested in the game through the soul dice. Basically, whenever you slay a demon, uh, as long as you're close to them, you can grab a soul dice. You grab a d6, you roll it, whatever face it lands on, you put that on your play sheet with that face up. So you roll a four, you put it on the play sheet with a four facing up. From that point in the game forward, you can replace any roll that you make or your opponent makes with one of your soul dice replacing whatever die you choose with the face of the die. Uh, you can also use it to boost a demon's movement. They can effectively burn the soul off and they get to add the face value to their movement. So those are sort of the two uses of it. Uh, the What this manifests as is that if you roll even very low numbers, like you roll a one, mm -hmm. that's fantastic. That means you can make some particular uh, one of a, a, a die from an attack that an opponent makes against you, miss, right? Or really? if you roll a six, maybe you can defend. Uh, and we'll talk about probably the mechanics in just a moment of like what combat feels mm. like and looks like. But those soul dice end up becoming a very critical mechanic. Now, there's a trick here. I have tricked you yet again because the soul dice has these in-game uses that are quite powerful. However... After the game, they also convert into your raw currency, what you use to go on expeditions, to recruit additional demons, mm -hmm. all these kinds of things. 
So the more of your currency you use in-game, the less of your uh, currency you will have after the game mm -hmm. to then potentially recover from uh, losses or to continue building your warband or uh, whatever. So there you yeah, go. I love that because it really does force you to make some hard decisions of, do I really need this now or can I save it for later? And if you're playing in that campaign, I mean, it really does make a difference, doesn't it? Again, those hard decisions are what you know keeps you coming back to a game again and again. It's not just push and slash. There, you actually have to consider: Do I use this in this moment? Do I use this to choke up my opponent? And the use of the one to be able to, if you roll low, to choke up an opponent um, when it really is critical for them. Genius, love it. Anything that I can use to mess up an opponent mid-game. Absolutely love it. Well, let's talk about the activation, because I know we could either go into combat or into the activation system, but I think the activation system might lend itself to discussion of combat later. Also, you did say this was your other favorite mechanic, and it is mine as well. Now, a lot of games use um, chits or order dice, for example, if we're going to use bolt action as an example, sure. where you sure. pull that out and that tells you whose goes next. And so you're never quite sure about who's going to go in the next activation, and it can't just alpha strike your opponent. Now, in this game, every turn the activation changes, but very differently to other games in that you can get runs of activations like bolt action, but you can almost see them coming a little bit. Vince, again, I think you'll do a much better job of explaining how this works. Tell us what happens when you grab that handful of D12s and roll them. Yeah, exactly. So I'm, I'm always fascinated by activation systems, right? And there's a million takes on them. Uh, but I wanted to design something really unique for this, and I'm quite happy with what we came up with. Effectively, you begin each round of the game by taking a number of D12s. And yes, we're using the oft-neglected D12, but there's there are mathematical reasons for that. Mm -hmm. And you take a number of them equal to the number of demons you still have in play. So let's say you've got seven demons on the board still. Maybe it's the first round. You're going to grab seven D12. Right. You roll them all, okay, out in the open. Both, both, all players do this. And you then arrange them in order sequentially from highest to lowest on your play sheet. So again, the play sheet has a little section where you can track your soul dice and where you can set your activation dice. And so you maybe you roll a 12, a 10, an 8, a 7, a 5, a 3, and a 1. Okay, great. Got a nice little spread there. Your opponent does the same. The way the activation works is we can both see each other's dice. This is public knowledge, mm -hmm. right? So it's random with runs, as you mentioned, like bolt action, right? Where bolt action, you can have runs and you, you pull three dice in a row. But that's random. You didn't see that coming. Right. You didn't know when you did one activation you were about to have another one. Your opponent doesn't know that you're about to get another one. You don't know until you make the information public, right? That is to say you extract the die from the bag, right? Exactly. Whereas here, this is publicly available knowledge. So you can actually tactically understand the turn and how it's going to play. And you just count down from 12 to 11 active or sorry from 12 to 1 i apologize activating in order mm -hmm. now if there's a tie then you just alternate right so whoever didn't go last goes next mm -hmm. easy easy to imagine right? right 
So if I have a 12, 11, 10, and my opponent's highest die was a 9, but maybe theirs goes 9, 8, 7, and mine goes 12, 10, 4, okay, I'm going to get a run early doors mm-hmm. in the round, right? But then they're going to get an equal run right after me, and theoretically, my demons are going to be in a more exposed position because I probably moved up board or towards something, right? Right. So, yeah, so, and that's all known, right? From the moment the roll happens, both players can look, see what's going to happen, see the order, who's going to get to go win, think about what that means and respond accordingly. So maybe you roll the 12 and you have the first activation, but then your opponent gets two or three activations after you. Okay, well, instead of rushing for the objective, maybe you move a more defensive demon up, mm-hmm. right? And play a little more conservatively to make it so you're not exposing anything to them where they can then jump on you and bring down a high value piece, right? So you you get to you get to make these decisions with knowledge that I think really shows and allows you to display skill. That that's ultimately what it is, right? It's a skill test. How well can you understand uh, the nature of what is going on in the game in a sort of battlefield general sense and then respond accordingly. Exactly. And I always like those sorts of knowledge tests that, that, that translate very well into skill tests. Right. So, yeah, exactly. And I love that it changes every turn. It's not like X wing where you have a certain order of operations that you follow depending on pilot skill, for example, in this game, it changes every turn and you get to choose the order of the demons you get to activate, as in, you, as you said, you could put a more defensive demon earlier in the turn, depending on how your activation plays out. You choose which demon activates. They only get to activate once that turn. And once they've activated, you put that activation dice next to them, just like in bolt action, to keep track of what's happening on the tabletop. But every turn it changes, and every turn you need to be aware of how the battlefield is, as you say, evolving. Uh, and you need to respond to that if you want to win the game. Yeah, exactly. It's It ends up being very simple. Uh, here's my 12. I'm going to pick uh, this demon. I move them. They fight. I set the die next to them to show that they're activated. Done. And then we continue in the next, in the next order in the number, right? So it's one of those things that you play it once. It just clicks right into place. And I, I, I was literally able to show people how to play the game in about five or 10 minutes when we were play testing and then get multiple games in fast. So it's usually about 30 or 45 minutes for a game, depending on how experienced you are and how, how evolved your, uh, your cabal is right. Uh, when you're fully up to like 10 demons, uh, later in a campaign, it can, it can run a little longer, obviously, cause there's just more, more meat on the board as it were. <laughs> exactly. But that is also significant because oftentimes with campaign games, uh, you get hung up. And I know many of us have played a million campaigns over the years where you get three or four weeks in, and then all of a sudden some people can't come anymore. Schedules change, or maybe people's enthusiasm has waned a little bit if they're not doing particularly well, or maybe if they have, and they just they're not seeing the challenge in it anymore. Regardless, campaigns usually struggle after a certain period of time um, getting all the players to commit. But when you have a game that is so fast, you can actually play three games in an evening, for example, and it's not a big deal. And you could do three, four games in the span of what you might play a game of Bolt Action or a game of Age of Sigmar or a game of 40K in. And during that time, your warband is advancing. It, it's a really, I love it, fast, furious, as you said, 
And it's a great combination with that campaign system because it really does allow you to get people together to play the game and actually advance that um, and, and not have it bogged down by longer game length, if that makes sense. It does, 100%. And, and really, when you get into the mechanics, so I'll, I'll talk just quickly about like how the actual mechanic of fighting goes and stuff, mm, because that's do. how we keep the game fast. So one of the things I wanted to make sure we did here, because again, the target for this is people who wanted that kind of fast, brutal fun, and in, including newer players, like I said, who might not, maybe they haven't played a skirmish war game before you know maybe they are maybe they have only played 40k or, or aos or something like that right mm -hmm. so you really only have three stats on a demon and that's move which is some number that is your move in inches mm -hmm. pretty pretty straightforward uh your life which is the amount of damage you can take before you're slain mm -hmm. again quite straightforward and conceptually easy to understand and then your combat score, and that's it. It's one score, and that is used for all determinations, offensive and defensive. And the way it works is pretty easy. You have a combat score. During your turn, you may, the most basic explanation is you can move and you can fight. That's the two things you can do. And so you move up to an enemy demon. You attack them. And to attack them, you take your combat score and you compare it to theirs. So let's say I'm a six and you're a five. Okay, that means I hit on twos. If I'm a six and you're a six, I hit on threes. If I'm a six and you're a seven, I hit on fours. So basically, if you're lower than me, I hit on twos, equal threes, higher fours. Mm -hmm. So the reason we use two, three, four, as opposed to something like 40K, which uses three, four, five, right? right which balances the middle of the die, as it were, as supposedly, theoretically, I guess. Theoretically. Middle yeah. of the die, quote mm -hmm. unquote is that actually that has a huge effect on efficacy of individual attacks, right? Yeah. Uh, because statistically, it becomes highly more probable that you have a wider s uh, number of successes when you just move down one pip. I mean, you're, you're increasing everything by 16%, which is actually quite large. And my thing that I hate in games more than anything is when you roll a lot of dice and nothing happens. Right. I think That's... that is truly one of my least favorite experiences in any game I play. If we spend a lot of time, I roll a bunch of die and then you roll a bunch of die and then I roll more dice and then you re-roll some dice and then at the end we're like, what happened? Well, this unit of 40 guys, you killed one of them. I'm yeah. like, oh. Well, that was definitely worth the five minutes we just spent rolling dice. So I, you know, I really didn't want that to happen. So the way this goes is, okay, so I hit on twos. Fantastic. I'm a six, you're a five. I hit on twos. Mm -hmm. I now roll six dice because my combat score is six. Oh, okay. Pretty straightforward. Ivory two plus is a hit, right? So if I roll six dice, everything that shows at least a two or greater on the face of the die is a successful point of damage. So let's say a math works out and five out of the six are two plus, you would take five damage. But you may roll your defense dice. You get five defense dice. Do you have a guess as to why you get five defense dice? It's because that's your defense score? Because your combat score is five. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. And that's determinative of everything, right? So you get to roll five combat defense dice. Any roll of a six is of defense. You reduce the damage by one. Got it. That's it. 
Now, now. Are the, is the two plus um, when you're rolling to attack and the six when you're rolling to defend, those are set numbers, right? Your The difference in combat score doesn't actually change those numbers. The difference in combat score changes your hit. Nothing changes your defense. Right. So, like, if I was the six but you were a seven and I was rolling to hit you, gotcha. then I would roll six dice and every four plus would be a successful point of damage. Oh, but you're def you always only defend on a six. Now, of course, there are special abilities and some defensive demons that can mm -hmm. play with that in interesting ways, right? That is exception-based design, so there are special rules that create exceptions to the base mechanics. But the reason it's tilted towards defense is actually a little inspiration from traditional hero quests. I don't know if you remember how that worked. I, but God, I haven't played that since college. You kind of have to help me out with that one. Yeah, it's okay. I I I, I draw on a wide range of influences in my and when I'm thinking about design. Hero Quest had sh you rolled defense dice and you you need to roll shields, but the key was there was only one shield on the die. That's right. Okay. And what that effectively meant was that the it was much harder to defend than to attack. Right? Damage was the sort of modal outcome was that you were killing things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the. That's effectively the same sort of experience I wanted here. Again, unless you're playing a very defensive demon, right? Right. So the, the that's it. That combat's fast and simple. So in that case, you'd roll your five dice. Maybe you get lucky, you get one six. Great, you took four damage. There it was. Mm -hmm. And it keeps things fast. It keeps things fun. It keeps things furious, just like, um, you know, just like those old... Warhammer Quest games. I just remember things dying in droves back then. And as I was playing back then, I wasn't paying attention to game mechanics so much as rolling dice, yelling a lot, and pushing things around on the tabletop. But now that you explain it like that, it definitely, looking back with less rose-colored glasses, I suppose, that makes a lot more sense compared to when you play games like, you know, 40K or Bolt Action or whatever, where you do, where you want your weapons to be effective, but also you want things to survive a little bit so that they draw out a bit more in the game. Whereas this very short, very brutal. Uh, and you definitely want more damage than more defense, right? That's exactly right. Yes. The game is tilted towards offense and that's absolutely an intentional choice. Yeah. hundred percent. Well, Vince, we've talked a lot about the combat mechanics and we've talked about scenarios, Let's talk a little bit about what happens campaign-wise after the game occurs, because that is definitely a big part of the rules as well. Yeah, absolutely. So there is a big campaign system. You can play it as a one-off, but I think it really shines when you're engaging in a campaign. Mm. And after the campaign, there's a series of six steps that you go through, sort of post-game wrap-up, right? And the first of which is determining what we call the sort of the traditional injury table, or as it were. Mm -hmm. um, this is called the soul loss table in this case. You roll for any demons that were slain during the fight. Now, the important part is here is your demons can't die. They're immortal creatures within the scope of the game. In the scope of the narrative, demons can, of course, die if put under incredible duress or attacked by insanely powerful things or, you know, whatever, right? Mm -hmm. But in the scope of the campaign, you're not going to die from a single skirmish with an enemy. You can, however, lose bits of your soul, and so you roll on a table to determine, or do you get a penalty, do you come out okay, or sometimes do you get a bonus? Uh, because it's chaos, right? The, the mm -hmm. nature of what constitutes these beings is not like a human, right? Uh, but even in humans, sometimes when we remove parts of ourselves, we get stronger. And by that, what I mean is if you've ever had your appendix go bad, 
you know that you're probably better off getting that out of you, right? And so exactly. in the same way, maybe you've got a, a bad soul in there and that came out and now the overall organism is stronger because of it. Uh, you can choose to call demons out so you can basically sacrifice your own demons and refund part of their souls if you want to, uh, you know, oh, this, this person got too weak. Maybe they had a couple times where they died mm -hmm. and maybe they rolled poorly multiple times and now they're kind of not really up to snuff anymore. You can call them off and uh, get a little refund on their souls and use it to reinvest in a new demon. Uh, the thing that I love most about the post-campaign uh, or the campaign play and the sort of post-game wrap-up is the title system. So this would be very familiar to anybody who's played, say, an MMO in forever mm -hmm. <laughs> or maybe like Xbox with Xbox achievements or whatnot, right? It's a the title system for doing certain things in the game or over the course of multiple games, your demon can earn a title, right? And... So, you know, we talk about the importance of naming each of your demons. You've only got mm -hmm. seven to ten guys. They're all, they all should be known quantities. So you don't buy any of them as groups. You buy them, they're all individuals. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, name each of them. And then each of them could have a title as well. And that title can grant them additional special abilities. And the titles are gained in, you know, sometimes for very, mm, what we'll call, I guess I'm making giant finger air quotes, but heroic type things. That mm -hmm. is to say, slaying enemies or doing the types of things you would expect but you can also earn titles from doing things like dying to the terrain that's in the in the game there's a full-fledged terrain system with lots of terrain that can play the game with you cause damage and be you know interesting and have a real impact on the gameplay you can kill your own demons uh you know sacrifice your own people and that can grant you titles you can kill your leader permanently and uh, gain a usurper title if your devout or somebody else in the war in the cabal wants to take over. Uh, so there's lots of options there that then further customize and and make your demons unique. Um, some of the scenarios also grant unique titles mm -hmm. if you achieve very uh, specific or difficult things within that scenario as a sort of extra bonus. So not only can you win the scenario, which is cool, but you can also then achieve the extra thing, which is getting the title in there. So, uh, and then after that, you can go on expeditions to try to uh, gain more relics or essences, which are sort of the, the loot that you're rolling to discover after the battle. And uh, from that, then you're ready to go into your next game. Yeah, it is one of the best uh, campaign developed or developed campaign systems that I've seen, particularly in an indie game, I think ever. It, there's just so much to it uh, that when I was preparing for this, I just I ended up making too many notes and said and and crossed it out and said ask Vince to explain because it is there is so much to it um, and that is saying something given and I should mention that if you are interested in Rain and Hell you can go to rainandhell.com I believe um, is the website but if you go to Wargame Vault which is where a lot of you guys uh, like me buy a lot of uh, the the PDFs for the games that we like to play uh, and then print them. It's $10. This whole game is $10. And it is there. It's ready. It's now. It's not a Kickstarter. You don't have to worry about crowdfunding it. There's no miniatures involved. It's using what you already have. It's an agnostic system, as we said. So, I mean, $10 and you are ready to go with this. And again, in a game that is 
so cheap and so easy to get, the campaign system is incredibly well-developed. And I think, I, I mean, we really should take our hats off to you for that because a lot of work has gone into this. How long did it take to develop this? Because there's a lot here. I mean, it was a major part of what we were working on through development. I don't, I don't, I couldn't tell you exactly what part of the overall nine or ten months right. was spent on the campaign, but we certainly spent a lot of time on it. Because to me, for both Adam and I, actually, this is true. I've played multiple campaigns of various skirmish games and and other types of war games over mm-hmm. the years. I mean, I've been a, a tabletop war gamer since 1998. Played a lot of different games over those years. And campaigns are always where I had the most fun. And I really wanted it. I'm also a long, long time role player, as, as we mentioned, right? Mm-hmm. I've written a lot of RPGs and stuff like that. So the concept of advancement and loss and gain and that kind of thing is very natural to me and very compelling to me. And so the integration of those kinds of RPG elements, we wanted to really make sure it felt like a full fleshed out system where, again, there was replayability to it, right? So there, there's multiple goals. One is to make any any individual campaign interesting and, and varied in what you experience, but also t- to have replayability because your uh, cabal will evolve differently, right? Uh, you will exactly uh, find different amounts of treasure and loot, different essences, different relics, uh, gain different titles, have different bonuses or penalties granted to your slain demons, right? Uh, and, and so all these things help to create uh, an experience that really isn't going to be the same. So you can do multiple campaigns in there and, and still have a, a new fun experience every time. That's right. And as you say, the faction or the discipline special rules really do change the way you play your warband in the first place. So you really are talking about having a different experience every time. Again, so much uh, variability in this game, so much choice, so many tactical decisions. I think it's great. Um, Again, guys, let me plug that again. If you have not already checked this out, I highly recommend it. War Game Vault, $10. Uh, rain in hell and it's r-e-i-g-n not r-a-i-n um for those who uh are spelling uh need a little help it's it's not too long either 64 pages it's it's a tight concise rule set and again if you're looking for a little something something uh to read if you've been locked down or if you're coming out and you want something fast and furious to play with your friends i highly recommend this this looks great especially if you're like me and you have literally three demon armies from playing old Warhammer games that are sitting in a case collecting dust. This game is a godsend, uh, pun intended, because (laughs) it is everything I need to play with my old models. It's awesome. Vince, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. I know you're super busy with multiple streams a week and with all the content you're creating, but it's awesome to talk about Rain and Hell. Thank you so much, man. Hey, very happy to uh, very happy to join you. If I can make just one small note, people should check out the website as well that you mentioned, uh, mm-hmm. rainandhell.com, that you're exactly right, because we do have things like the play sheet there for free available to download. There's an FAQ there to download, and we're actually going to be adding a set of uh, solo and co-op rules Brilliant. next month as well for free. That will that will be available through Wargame Vault and through the website. Uh, so, you know, check that out. If you're somebody who likes physical books, you could through Wargame Vault also has both the book and PDF combo for 15 bucks. 
So you can get the PDF, the PDF alone for 10 or the book plus PDF for 15 bucks. So we are going to continue to put out some interesting options and uh, additional rules and things like that for uh, the game over the next couple months to make sure that people who are playing it really get the, the most value for their dollar. So there you go. And I, I, I just want to thank you again for having me on. This was so much fun and really happy to chat. Man, anytime you want to come back, I know that Snarling Badger is talking about putting out some other games in the future. We love to talk indie games and, uh, you know, we love your work, man. So please keep it up. Now, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening to Cast Dice. As always, if you have any questions uh, or any requests for future episodes, please find us on Facebook, C-A-S-T-D-I-C-E. You're guaranteed a response by me. Hi, my name is Brad. Just remember that I am in Australia, so it might take a couple hours if I'm sleeping. But other than that, as our buddy Casey always says, when you are playing the games that we know and love, I hope your dice roll hot. I hope your beverages are cold. But more than anything else, we at Cast Eyes hope that you are having fun. Stay safe out there, guys. Good night. Are gone.